Hey, let me pray, and then we're going to dive into the message. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for these moments. I thank you for a new year. I thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word, to talk about commitment, to talk about what commitment means for us. And I ask, Lord, for a blessing and for your spirit to be with us as well. May our lives be transformed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting a whole new series today. And if you again turn to your worship guide, you will see inside there, inside cover, it says committed to. And there are different words that we're committed to. We're going to be committed to appreciation, to acceptance, to accountability, to authenticity, to adaptability, adventure, and affiliation. And each week, we're going to address one of these words, one of these ideas, one of these values, one of these core values about how we are committed to this, and what does it really mean. And they're going to be based on the seven I am statements found in the Gospel of John. We're going to be exploring all of these. Today, we'll be looking at appreciation. You would say to yourselves, why now? Why now? Why now actually do this? Why now talk about being committed to appreciation at the beginning of this year and this particular time as well? Well, primarily because there has been a shift, a tectonic shift has taken place at this church. Plates have moved, and the whole church has shifted over Christmas. I don't know if you realize this, but it was pretty amazing. I came back, and I was like, the church moved a few degrees. Have you seen it? If you go outside and you just you, you measure where we were with a Google map and you say to yourself, are we in the same location that we were last week? We are not. We have moved. And you're thinking, how is that possible that the building hasn't collapsed? Right? Well, it's because we moved metaphorically. Metaphorically, not physically. Absolutely not, because that would be really weird. It would be really weird. People like, I don't know, there's so many straight 90-degree angles in the extension there. I don't know, maybe it would shift everything entirely inside there. But we have moved, ideologically, we have moved our entire church. And, and the reason I see this is because of the commitment level that has come forward in the last month. So we asked you last December, usually when we make our offering appeals, they're very quiet and very gentle. But last December, we asked you to be able to commit your tithes and your offerings to be able to help the mission move forward. And our goal was to raise $114,000 in December. That's three times the normal amount of money that we raise every month. You guys, by December 31, had raised $118,000. And then on that day, another $66,000 arrived. Isn't that incredible? I was like, that's incredible. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. From lots of people coming together saying, we believe in the mission, the vision, the direction of what this church is doing. All of that money was raised, which is going to help us be able to move things forward, including, by the way, you have heat today because the water pump blew down this week and a new water pump was put in as of yesterday at four o'clock. Four days of stress we were in here. I bought new clothes to sit in the office because it was so cold, because no heat was inside the church. The boiler was fine, but the water pump wasn't working. But it came in and they fixed it at four o'clock yesterday. I was not going to tell you guys. I was going to let you turn up and just huddle because it would be emotional. <laughs> You'd be closer together, it'd be fine. <laughs> but that was phenomenal. But then the other thing is that you guys are committed with your time as well. I just printed out a copy of all the names of people who've decided to give their time to volunteer for different roles and different areas of training and different areas of service inside here. 10 pages long, single space of everybody giving their time to be able to support the church here, which is phenomenal. I met with Diane Johnson and Patty Heeb this Thursday when it was a snow day, remember? And everybody's like, oh, the whole country's come to a standstill. Nobody can move. We met. 
We talked ministry. It was fantastic. Their visions for the diaconates, really good, really exciting, really good stuff taking place. And today, for all the greeters and refreshment leaders, we're going to be doing a training session after the Bible study. We'll have lunch together, and then we'll have a training session this afternoon. So that's good. But those are heavy commitments. Those are great commitments. They're not like light commitments. You know, a light commitment would be the snow, and you're in your driveway. Should you gun it, or should you not? Right? Should you gun it to get in the garage and hope that you make it into the garage without breaking your wing mirrors, or should you try to creep up the driveway and then realize you're sliding back down? Those are light commitments, right? So I always just gun it, you know, because transporter style. I just like close your eyes and gun it. That's the best way to do it. And usually, I make it in the garage. No problems, usually. Um, there are occasions when I may have missed it, but, but most of the time, you just gun it. Those are simple light commitments. Big commitments, though, big commitments are things like getting a mortgage. That's a big commitment. Marriage, that's a big commitment. And that's the kind of commitments we're talking about. Those commitments create tension. They do. They create uh, a serious flux in your life because you have to think to yourself, this is not kind of normal. This is going to be different. It's going to change. And you start to appreciate how incredibly difficult it is to make some commitments sometimes. So the very first question we have for you today, the recalibrate questions, is this. What prevents us committing to appreciation? You can discuss this in your Bible study classes, you can discuss this in your life groups, you can talk about it afterwards. What prevents us committing to appreciation? So I was thinking about this sermon for a long time, right? And uh, last Sunday, we were in Seattle, it was the final night of our vacation, we'd been away for New Year's, and uh, we were coming back, and, and Sunday evening, my wife and I would talk through the car, and we were out somewhere, and we said, hey, let's get some pizza, that'd be fantastic. And I like Pagliacci's pizza, fantastic. So we had just left, you know, uh, her grandmother, and, and so we said, let's order the pizza straight away. So I called Pagliacci and say, I'd like these pizzas, and I, you know, pesto and some onions, and I was really hoping for sweet corn. But nobody does it in this country. Sweet corn on pizza is really good. You have to try it. So uh, I ordered the pizza. The person said, oh, it'll take 22 minutes. I said, I know, I'll make it there in time. And then I put the phone down, started to drive, and my wife said, now remember, we're going to PCC's first, right? And I said, PCC? Now, PCC is a really great food market shop that sells food, and it's because my wife's gluten-free, so we need to go to PCC to get her some food. But as, as I started to drive, I suddenly realized that PCC is the other direction entirely, right? It's not like on the way to Pagliacci's. It's not after Pagliacci's. It is like 15 minutes the wrong direction. So then I started to wrestle in my soul. I'm going to have cold pizza. And you know, cold pizza is like up there on sin level, right? It's just like, it's just, it's just wrong. You should never eat cold pizza. If anybody eats cold pizza, you have not understood how to eat food. This is not right, right? So cold pizza. So then I'm driving the car, and I kid you not, I was thinking about my sermon, appreciation, and then I was looking at my wife in my head, because she was sitting right next to me, I didn't want to turn and look at her, and I was fuming. I was mad. I was like, you could have told me we're going to PCC first. I could have got a PCC. I could have actually ordered the pizza then and got it warm. No, 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 no. You said order it straight away. That's what you said. And now I ordered it. And now I'm going to be half an hour late. That pizza will be so cold. 
things will start to grow on it. That's how bad it will be. So I'm thinking all these thoughts through and thinking about appreciation, and then I'm thinking about my sermon, and I'm thinking, how can I be appreciative of my wife right now? So, so I thought, oh, she's the mother of our children. Three points, I don't know, you know, I mean, just, no, 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 I mean, obviously, way more than that. But then I went back to the cold pizza, and I thought, cold pizza, I can't believe this. And so then I went back to appreciation, I thought, oh, how can I be appreciative of her? Oh, you know, she's been married to me for a couple of decades, I suppose. I mean, another point, you know, but it just, it was so difficult, so difficult for me to move myself from appreciating her and even wrestling with a sermon, thinking in my head, how can I preach honestly and authentically about appreciation when I'm ticked at her? This woman that you gave me, God, <laughs> this woman is gonna make me have cold pizza. Sure enough, we get to PCC, and there's a line. It's a line, it's a long line. There's like everybody in the entire village decided to come out to PCC that night. So another four hours go by. We, we get the food, we go to the pizza place, Pagliacci's, they come out and say, well, we were about to throw this away. <laughs> we thought you'd left the country. I'm like, yeah, it felt like I had. And, 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 and then all those emotions of the cold pizza started to come up. So I took the pizza and I took it to the back of the car and I threw it in the trunk. It's like, it's cold. It can stay in the frozen trunk too. <laughs> You nasty pizza. Meanwhile, I sat down, and my wife knew that I was mad, right? She looked at me and said, what's the matter? Something the matter? I'm like, inside, I was thinking, yes, of course there is. Cold pizza. And she's like, you're not upset about the pizza, are you? I said, no, 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 not me, no. Why would I ever be upset about the pizza? Let's go home. So we went home, and then I opened the pizza, and I had to nuke I had to microwave slice after slice. Do you know how bad that is? It becomes like rubber. And then you think to yourself, why am I eating this? So I sat down there, and my wife, I was telling her that I was gonna say, share this story and yesterday, and she said to me, well, are you gonna tell them the truth? And I was like, well, maybe, part of it. I mean, my perspective is always truth. Um, and she said, well, are you going to tell them that you actually sat at the kitchen table and didn't join the family for dinner? And I said, did I? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. She said, are you going to tell them that you put your headphones on and you were watching Netflix while eating your microwaved pizza? I said, did I? I didn't know you guys were at the table. I was so focused on the pizza. <laughs> so why do we struggle? Why do we struggle? We struggle because at our core, we're human and our nature makes us struggle with this. It's just, it's just our nature. We just, as soon as something goes wrong, we blame somebody else, we get upset, and we're all lovey-dovey and nice about everything else, and then suddenly it's just like, ah, oh, this monster arrives and just takes over. And this happens over and over again. It's just the struggle that we have. At our elders board meeting on Tuesday night, uh, we, had, uh, we had several documents. We were doing an orientation for the elders. And one of the documents that I shared was the Code of Conduct. It's actually on our website. You can go watch, read it yourself because you have nothing else to do this afternoon. Click on boulder.church and click on admin and click on Code of Conduct. Well, there were two sentences inside there that came up that caused a little bit of a stir. The sentence was uh, that you as an elder will uphold Christian standards. You as an elder will maintain doctrinal purity. And before you knew it, the question was flying across like grenades, all across saying, well, who's going to decide that? Who's going to decide what the standards are? Who's going to decide what the doctrinal purity is? 
and I mean, I really wanted to throw a few more grenades in because it was so much fun, but, but we resisted. I resisted. I made a few little funny comments about Cindy, but then I kind of pulled back, you know, because Cindy, Cindy and Thomas were sitting opposite me, and, you know, you could throw grenades at them, and they just tickle them and throw them back. You know, it's just kind of fun. So we, we laughed a little bit about it. But the truth is this, is that we, we agreed that it's consensus of us as a community, listening to what the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches, what the Word says, that we will understand what these things are. Common sense should actually help us out with this. But I also shared this, and maybe I didn't share it enough, so I'll share it with you as well. As a pastor, as one of the pastors in this church here, I have a responsibility to not lead the flock astray before God. And I take that very seriously. I don't want heresy to be taught. I don't want you to be going down a path where you're thinking this is what it means to follow God and it actually becomes a disaster for your life. I take that super seriously. God expects me to take that seriously. But I don't always know the answer. And you don't always know the answer. That's why Paul says it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the wisdom that helps us understand these things. And so through the Holy Spirit, we can do this. But we struggle. We struggle with this because at our core issue, we would like to be in control. At our core, issue, our human nature doesn't work so well. So how do we change that? How do we change that kind of like core human nature that's just slightly off inside there? Well, you could wake up January 1, which maybe some of you did wake up January 1 from the night before. Uh, you wake up January 1 and you say to yourself, okay, today I will be appreciative. I'm committed to appreciation. In fact, I don't even need to go to church because I know what I need to do before I arrive. I'm committed to appreciation. I guarantee you, that as soon as you hit cold pizza, you may lose the rag. No, it's true, it's true. And it may not be cold pizza for you. For me, it was. But for you, it may be something else. It may be that you're just exhausted. It may be that just something else is taking time in your life, something else that's hitting you. But sooner or later, it's going to hit you in a way that's going to be really difficult. So the text that I'm looking at today from the Gospel of John, which I hope you looked at through the Daily Walk. We write a Bible study for you every day boulder.church forward slash daily, and inside there, you can actually study the text in preparation for this week, but the text that we're looking at is in John, John chapter 15, and it's phenomenal. I, I love the story that Pastor David shared, so true, being connected to it, and this is what the text is. Now, John is one of my favorite books. I'm glad, Daryl, that you're here, um, because I heard, Daryl, that you preached from John a few weeks when you were pastoring at this church here. A few months? A few years? Yeah! When I heard that he had preached from John pretty much the entire time that he was serving senior pastor here, I was totally jealous because it's phenomenal. John is phenomenal. I agree 100%. You get into this book, you know, you can actually discover all of the fundamental core beliefs inside the Gospel of John alone. Just, it's just packed, rich with inside, inside there. You open it up and it's just poetic. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And just, it's just powerful stuff. It tells you from the beginning to the end that God is there. And at the end of the book, in John chapter 20, it reminds you that he wrote everything inside the gospel so that you may believe in Jesus, so that you may be committed to Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's calling us to the next level. And the vision for this church to go to the next level is not on us. It's not on us. We're not smart enough to be able to work that out. The vision is actually founded in the reality. And the reality is in the idea that we are followers, we are disciples of Jesus. And that reality is Jesus. That's what we're following. And that is constantly expanding. So we write these statements, and I'm asking all the elders to write statements as well. Statements why we choose Boulder. So the pastors have done it, the elders are now writing their own statements. So I have a few of them, and the rest of them are all due today. 
just in case you forgot. You're going to send me your statements today. Really excited about that. And so these statements are good statements. Ryan's like, what? Did I have to write my statement? Is that right, Ryan? Ryan's not paying any attention right now. Let me, let me try and get Ryan. Yes, you. Yes, I was talking to you for about 20 minutes. Okay, so this, this is what we're hoping, that you write these statements. But these statements, okay, these statements are only a fragment of who God is. They'll never describe God because God is constantly expanding in our knowledge. Our knowledge of him is constantly growing. And as we grow, we discover more about him. We're just like, this is a clearer and better picture all the time. But John has seven statements inside there, and I'm going to read to you John chapter 15. It's page 999 in your pew Bibles. So turn with me to John chapter 15. I'm going to read the 17 verses the, real quick, real beautiful, simple, because I think that they're so rich, so powerful, and they have deep implications for how we actually operate in our life that I think they're valid for us to remind ourselves what the text actually says. John chapter 15, verse 1, page 999 in your Bible. I am the vine, the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I spoke to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit, much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you may wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that you may have joy, may be in, joy, in your joy, and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that wherever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the last I am statement. There's seven of them. We're going to look at them all through the next seven weeks, six weeks after this week here. This is the last one. The reason why I chose to go to the last one when we start this entire series off is because this is the foundation. You have to, like David, Pastor David shared with the light, you have to be connected. He uses this beautiful example, right, where he's trying to tell us that this is actually a vine, and the vine means something to us, but maybe there's some other metaphors that are inside there. But God is saying, be connected to me. At Tuesday night at the elders' board meeting, I read the text, Judges chapter 7, 1 to 7. You know the story well of Gideon, about to go to battle. And in that text there, Gideon says, I got 23,000 men. And God says to him, no, 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 take it down, take it down, take it down. And eventually he ends up with 300 guys. Now you can go to battle because there are two lessons that God wanted Gideon to know. Number one, humility. It is not about you. I know we like to think that we've done well and we do okay, but it is not about us. Number two, it's all about you. I need you. Kind of weird, eh? So he basically says, look, it's not us, yet it is with us. 
Because he says, I need 300 of you. I don't need all of you. I need 300 of you. But I need the 300 of you to be connected to me. And when you're connected to me, amazing things can happen. When you are a community, when you actually connect together, you can do more than can you do by yourself. So he says this, this vine metaphor, which made lots of sense back then because people saw vines all over the place. Today, I guess the metaphor would be, we are a tree, and Jesus is the roots, the roots of the tree. We are the tree, or we are a child, and Jesus is the mother. And those are beautiful things because when you think about it, the vine bears fruit, which is beautiful, fantastic stuff. The tree, it creates oxygen for us and shelter and shade and beautiful things. And children, lots of wonderful things. Sleepless nights. No, the creativity of life they do for us. The creativity that they actually generate that inspires us as well. But all of them come from a source. All of them come from a source. And Jesus is trying to say, I want you to understand that you're much more productive you're much more enabled. You're so much stronger if you would be connected to the source. The results inside here are just phenomenal. In fact, he comes up with this famous verse that's often missed inside John 15. When he describes us no longer as servants, but as friends. And this text has caused so much controversy for people because we often like to imagine God here and we are his minions. And we're just robots, right? And God says, okay, let me pull a string. Oh, you look so creative. Let me somersault. Whoa, that looks great. And that's how God works. But God says, I don't want to call you that. In fact, the word inside the text is not even servants. It's actually slave. I do not call you slave. I call you a friend because in that relationship, we exist. And when we are friends... We don't get upset with each other. We connect with each other. We follow, we learn, we grow, and we can trust each other. And so God says, here, I'm letting you know, and this is a very important part of the passage of the story because John takes us all the way through to the final week, and this is the final sections that Jesus is trying to say, hey, look, this is the most important thing to remember. I want you to love each other, but I want you to understand it's because God is your friend. And if you did that, you would start to appreciate things so much better and so much more. Appreciation, though, is very difficult. It's difficult when you're exhausted. It's difficult when you're tired. It's difficult when you're not even connected to Jesus inside there. And so what I encourage you to do is to, is to take time or to take moments inside your walk with God and to say to him, all right, where can I be connected to you? Where can I actually take time to be able to listen to you? And some of you, maybe you run or you walk. Some of you take a shower, uh, whatever may take place. Some of you sit like me. I, I love to sit in front of a fire. And when I sit in front of a fire and I just listen and I just watch the flames, it's pretty powerful stuff. And I reflect and I talk to God about life. That's where I take time to connect with God. And we need to take time to connect with God in order to become committed to appreciation. It's so easy to let life fly by and not be committed to appreciation. When uh, I moved to America, I moved to Michigan first, and then I moved here three years ago. So seven, eight, eight, ten years ago, I was in Michigan. My very first car that I had in Michigan was an Oldsmobile that was given to me, and it was great for the first year. The second year, this Oldsmobile, though, the heating system died on it. And so uh, it was really hard to repair, nobody knew how to fix it in the town that I was in. And so what ended up happening is that I would have a scraper for inside the car and a scraper for outside the car. Right? So I get inside the car and I scrape the windows inside, then I jump out with another scraper, a longer scraper, and I do all the windows outside. The snow was so heavy in Michigan that what ended up happening is that the snow would build up in my car. 
And for three months, my floor bed, you know, the panel down below where my pedals are for the gas and the brake, was just covered with a thick layer of snow. It would never melt because the car never heated up. So it was just like this solid, packed-out snow. I loved the car. It was fun to drive and, you know, front-wheel drive, and it just went all over the place and had some fun with it. But I couldn't do much with it, and I couldn't go anywhere kind of strange or safe places with it. But now, as of January last year, I have a four-wheel drive car. Oh, that's so much fun. It's amazing. So on Thursday, when the whole city shut down and you know, the, the people didn't come out here for appointments and just the whole place, I decided to come to the church. So I came to the church and drove to the church. And on the way, so many people were like stuck in the snow. So I got to stop my car, drive it up on a snow ledge and said, I can get off this. And then get out the car, help them push their car into the place, get back in the car, drive off because of course I can. There was one person who had a truck, right? And Unless I'm wrong, this truck was a huge truck. It was four-wheel drive, but they hadn't switched on the four-wheel drive. So they only had the rear wheels going. So the truck's like, and they don't know what to do. So I was like, you know, I, I'll stop a fair distance away because I don't want to smack my car because they were all over the place, got out to help them out as well. And then people started to help everybody else. I saw people like helping other people. There were seven people around one car to help this one car. As I drove by, I saw why there were seven men helping that one lady. I was like, oh, such valiant heroes, <laughs> such valiant heroes. The one lady was just like, yes, all seven of you, pick it and carry it for me. And so they were all digging away, moving the car as well. It was fantastic, it was fantastic. So I came to church, we opened it up, and I posted some pictures on Instagram. And because they were on Instagram, somebody saw the church was open, so they came by, they said, I was in Boulder for the first time, and they came by, we had a good chat, and I said, they should come and help us out with worship, and Jessica and I talked to them, and it was a really good conversation. But earlier that day, the phone rang, and uh, I picked it up, and I talked to the person, and the person said, Man, I, I live around the corner here, and I just, I don't know, I need a Bible, that's all, I need a Bible. Would you happen to have a Bible? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> In the church, a Bible. Mm. No, of course, I said, yes. Yes, we have a Bible. So he, he said, I'm putting my snowshoes on. I'm coming up ninth. I'll be there in a minute. So he came up, and I gave him the Bible. I told him the story about how a couple of people in our church here donated money to be able to buy all these Bibles. They're here for free. And I said, what do you need this Bible for? He said, I just, uh, I don't know. I just feel like I need to be able to know something. I've walked away from God. I need to know something about God. So I, I said, well, you need not only this Bible. Let me give you another one. And I gave him my Andrew's study Bible. Whew. It's fantastic. Hardback. None of this floppy paperback stuff. This is okay. It's okay. It was a hardback. I gave him. I said, this is a good Bible. You'll enjoy studying this well. And he has some study notes. And then he, I said to him, you know, you should come to church. Come join us on Saturday. Uh, come to church. And he said, oh, I work Sundays uh, down in Denver. I said, surprise. <laughs> Uh, we meet on Saturday mornings. And then he said this phrase, oh, that's right. My grandmother's Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah, I remember you people. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't bad, right? I mean, maybe I said it sounded like bad, but it wasn't that bad. It was, it was actually very nice. It was very nice. I said to him, well, at some point, I'd love to connect and we can talk sometime. So he left and he gave the Bible. It was on the snow day. It was supposed to be closed, but because we're open, it happened, and I'm appreciative that I have a car that actually gets me here. I'm appreciative that this church decided years ago to buy a house in this city here so the pastor could actually live here, because there's no way I could afford to live here. Well, I could. I could buy a garage. Uh, <laughs> we could, like, open it up, 
hey, close it down. <laughs> but because the church does and because we're able to rent from it, we can live here local and I can come to church and be part of it. It's fantastic. And it's great to be able to do that. And I am so much more appreciative because when you do things for other people, you realize that they have done things for you. I mean, there are so many stories that I could tell you of how people have done things for me. When I first started out in ministry as a kid, uh, about 18, 19, and I was driving to this house, and I had a, a, a Nissan, uh, a Nissan Cherry is what we call it. I think in this country it's a 310A. Old car, beautiful car. Um, I drove this car, and the suspension rusted out in the back because, you know, it was Japanese. And in those days, Japanese cars were basically tins of tuna, um, with rust, right? And they would just rust away. So this is back then. So the, the suspension strut broke, and the whole, I just ripped out the suspension strut, and I had the spring, and the car drove. For years, the car drove until, well, not years, only one year, because in England, you had to test it every year. And I, I remember taking the car in to get it tested. The guy lifted the car up, and the back wheel dropped down. The spring rolls onto the ground. He looks at me and says, seriously? <laughs> seriously? You, you, think, you think I'm even going to test this car? This needs to be condemned. I said, I'm a student. Let me put the spring back, push the wheel back up. It works. It bounced a lot, but it worked. So I remember I, I, I was visiting somebody, and I'd left my lights on, and the car died, right? So then I got out, and I thought, all right, I'll just start. I'll just push it and start. So I'm outside, I'm pushing this little Nissan, I'm just pushing it, trying to jump start it with a manual. This is a real car, it has a gearbox. And I'm pushing it to try to start it, and it just wouldn't work. I wasn't getting enough speed. All of a sudden, this car comes by, and uh, these people like all jump out, maybe about 50 of them in this car, five. And so they jump out of the car, and they all come over and say, they say, brother, which is really weird, right? People calling you brother. I mean, we call each other brothers and sisters kind of because we think it's normal. It's not really. <laughs> it happens in family, but in Christianity, it's fine. But this person said, brother, can I help you? I said, yes, my car. And so then they said, sure. And they, they pushed my car. They started up, and they were all Pentecostals, really excited Pentecostals. <laughs> they were singing the entire time as they're pushing the car. Started up. Then they came over to me, and they said, can I give you a Bible? I'm like, sure. <laughs> I have one. That's great. I'll add it to my collection. I'd love this. So they gave me a Bible. They, they prayed for me, and they went on the way. And I was so appreciative of what they had done for me. And this happens all the time. So you imagine if you committed to appreciation, the kind of life that you could live, the kind of people that you could be, that people would say, man, these people are good. These people make a difference, and they would make a difference in your life as well. Question number two, our final question for this morning is this. It's in your worship guide. What would committing to appreciation look like in your life? What would committing to appreciation look like in your life? I, um, we were in Seattle, and uh, when we were in Seattle, we, Becky and I, if we have the time, we'll go down to Portland. I love Portland. Boulder is, is, uh, would like to be as cool as Austin or Portland. It is not. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. Look at you guys. That's so offensive. <laughs> It's okay, it's okay, you can get over it. See a therapist, talk it out, it'll be fine. But Portland's a great city, I love Portland. And we go there for many reasons, but one of the reasons that they has Powell's Bookstore. Powell's is this, is this incredible maze, it's like a library, except for you get to buy the books instead of just take them and return them. You get to keep them. 
as long as you pay for them. So it's fantastic. So I went inside there, looking around, and I found several books, and I feel so guilty because, you know, you, you go there, and you, you look at the book, and you flip it over, you look at the price, and then you pull your phone out, and you look at Amazon, and you're like, half price. Oh, so tempting. So as a rule, if I'm inside a bookstore, because I believe bookstores should exist, because ideas need to exist, I buy the books in the store. So I bought a book, I bought a couple of books, and uh, this book I've read, uh, it's pretty phenomenal. It's called When Breath Comes Air. When Breath Becomes Air, and I think we've got a picture of it so you can actually see it, When Breath Becomes Air. Anybody read this book? Pretty phenomenal book, it's written by uh, Paul Kalanathi, um, and his wife Lucy finished the book off. Um, and you'll understand why in a minute. But I'm gonna read you a little bit about Paul so you understand who he is, because this was a, a pretty powerful story for me as I read this story here. He grew up in uh, Kingman, Arizona. He graduated from Stanford University with a BA and MA in English Literature and a BA in Human Biology. And then he earned an MPhil in History and Philosophy of Science and Medicine from the University of Cambridge. Good for him. He graduated cum laude from Yale School of Medicine and when he was inducted into the Alpha Omega Alpha National Medical Honor Society. He returned to Stanford to complete his residency there to become a neurological surgeon and a professor at that place. And that all happened uh, before 2013. He was a, his story basically inside, he talks about how he's developing his entire life and he talks about how his parents, his father was from uh, India, his mother from India, but his father was Christian and his mother was Hindu and so it was a sin or a bad thing for them to get married. So they eloped and they moved to America. His father was a cardiologist. And then after they moved out here, they lived somewhere, I think it was on the East Coast, then they moved to Arizona and he worked as a doctor and Paul says he grew up watching his dad belong to the community, take care of the community and love the community and, and yet his, his passion for English literature was overwhelming. As you heard, he studied English literature quite a lot and loved reading and loved writing. And so this tension between biology and English for him was quite serious. Eventually, he decided to go to medical school and study through there. And in his second year, second year of residency, he said it was just very difficult for him to understand what it really meant to be a doctor. Page 81 of the book says this, but um, he said, I began to suspect that being so close to the fiery light of such moments only blinded me to their nature, like trying to learn astronomy by staring directly at the sun. I was not yet with patients in their pivotal moments. I was merely at those pivotal moments. I observed a lot of suffering. Worse, I became immune to it. And then he tells us a story about how there was a, an emergency taking place and, and somebody was pulled in and as they were pulled in, he had to do some surgery and, and it didn't work out and the person died. And he had had this ice cream bar and he put the ice cream bar into his pocket and then he went in and tried to deal with his patient, couldn't deal with the patient, the patient died, and then he realized after this was all done that he still had the ice cream bar in his, in, his, uh, in his clothes. So then he went and got himself into a freezer next door to the where the patient was and was kind of freezing the ice cream again so that he could eat the ice cream. And while he was eating the ice cream, in the room next door, this family were dealing with the loss and the death and he was oblivious to it. He said, I wondered if, in my brief time as a physician, I had made more moral slides than strides. More moral slides than strides in his time. 
So this was a huge struggle for him. The rest of the book continues on his journey of him trying to understand exactly what life has called him to. In fact, at one point later on, he says this, that had I been more religious in my youth, I might have become a pastor, for it was the pastoral role that I sought. He was looking for what he believed he was called to be. And so as he grew in his journey of becoming this great doctor and becoming a phenomenal neurosurgeon, and he talks about the struggle of being arrogant and being amazing and being the best doctor in the hospital and all this kind of stuff, yet at the same time, he was constantly saying, I realized that I couldn't heal everybody, I couldn't fix everybody. And so my job, his job, really was to be able to help people to transition, to help people to know you are going to die. And let me be with you, not just be there, but let me be with you on this journey. And that was a huge shift for him. Um, then in 2013, he discovered that he had four, stage four lung cancer. Uh, he hadn't known for about a year, he was, he was losing weight and he thought some other things and he went to talk to some doctors and there's quite some funny stories inside here of how he's talking to these attendants and talking to these doctors and he says, yeah, I know what they're saying. Let me tell you what you're saying. Let me catch you up to speed what you really should be saying to me. And they never discovered everything until it was too late and there was stage four lung cancer. And that was just overwhelming for him and overwhelming to his wife, Lucy. Uh, she was a, a resident as well, training as well. And they just, it was just, in fact, he at one point didn't even share it with her. She just discovered it and it nearly broke their marriage because she said, why didn't you confide in me? Why didn't you talk to me? Why didn't you, do you not appreciate who I am? You do not appreciate who I, what our marriage is. So he went through this entire thing and he had to realize that he was now the patient and no longer the doctor. They had a baby. Uh, a year later, after discovering this, a baby girl called Katie, and he really hoped that he was going to be able to live at least until she was three or five, so that she would have her own memory, right, of what he was like to her. But this is what happens on page 209, uh, when things got really bad, he was on a ventil ventilation machine, the medical team came round and rounds, and they were discussing Paul's case outside the room where his family and I joined them. This is Lucy telling us this, because Paul wrote this book but he never finished it. So the last chapter here is Lucy capturing everything that Paul had gone through. Paul's acute respiratory failure was likely rapid cancer progressing and his carbon dioxide levels rising still. The family was torn. Paul's oncologist had phoned in hoping that there may be some way to ameliorate this, but the physicians present were less optimistic. I entreated them to weigh in with as much conviction as possible on the chance of erupting this abrupt decline, because it just happened so quickly. He doesn't want a Hail Mary, I said. If he doesn't have a chance of a meaningful life, he wants to take off the mask and hold Katie, his daughter. And this was his struggle of a doctor. He said, should I heal somebody in their brain, but then they have to live on a machine for the rest of their life? Should I protect them or actually just help them actually end well? Lucy says, I returned to Paul's bedside. He looked at me and his dark eyes alert above the noise bridge of the bit back mask and said clearly, his voice soft but one wavering, I am ready. Ready, he meant, to remove the breathing support to start morphine and to die. So the family gathered together and during the precious minutes after Paul's decisions, we all expressed our love and respect and tears glistened in Paul's eyes, and he expressed gratitude to his parents. He asked to ensure that his manuscript would be published. He told me that he loved me for the last time. And then the attending physician stepped by and said, look, Paul, after you die, your family will fall apart, but they'll pull it back together 
because of the example of bravery that you set. So go in peace, my brother. An hour later, the mask and monitors were off, and morphine was flowing through Paul's IV, and he was breathing steadily but shallowly, and he appeared comfortable. Nonetheless, I asked him whether he needed more morphine, and he nodded yes, his eyes closed. His mother sat so close to him, his father's hand rested on his head, and finally he slipped into unconsciousness. They stayed there another nine hours by his side. Katie was taken at times and placed right next to him and taken away. And then he fell asleep and he died. And the question I have for you is this, that his life, phenomenal, phenomenal, bright star, leading the field in the entire country. And what he really wanted more than anything was to be appreciated and to appreciate other people's lives. And somehow I think to myself, man, why, why do we have to wait until things are dark or hard before we share the appreciation for others in our lives? We know people, right? We know our families, we know our husbands, our wives, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, we know our children, we know our neighbors, and somehow we just, ah, oh, thank them for that someday. I'll let them know that I appreciate it. Maybe if we were people who were committed to appreciation, we would transform the world that we live in. And the world would be thankful that we existed. And God would say, you're my friend. <laughs> you're my friend because I can see what you do is what I do. I appreciate everyone, no matter where they are in their walk. And we should do the same. So my appeal to you, and I'm going to make an appeal every week for the next seven weeks, my appeal for you this week is to wrestle through how you can move from just being a regular Joe to being a person who says, I am committed to appreciating people around me because that's what God says. And that source comes from Jesus. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, oh, so many words and so many thoughts. Yet sometimes, Lord, just the silence alone allows us just to pause a little bit longer and say, I can do nothing without you, but with you, oh, it's amazing what I can do. God, may your power and your strength your love and your friendship that you've extended to us transform our natures. Make us people of appreciation of deep love and respect for each other. We ask this in Jesus' most beautiful and precious name. Amen.